The Guardian. Unplug your mobile phone charger to save around £3.50 a year. For more easy ways to save, complete our energy savers report at britishgas.co.uk forward slash ESR. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, the UN's top climate change official warns that we're not doing enough to replace the Kyoto Protocol. Germany's wind power chief tells us how to create an energy industry based on renewables. And we hear from Bill Bryson on his campaign to clean up Britain. This is Environment Weekly from guardian.co.uk. With me in the studio, I'm joined by our regular double act, John Vidal. Hello. The Guardian's environment editor. And Leo Hickman, the paper's ethical living editor. Hello. UN body urges action to stave off world food crisis, The Guardian. A report from the World Bank and the UN Food and Agricultural Organization says our farming practices have failed the poor. It calls for a radical new model of agriculture to meet the twin goals of defeating world hunger and protecting the environment. The report comes as soaring food prices have provoked riots, while land is increasingly being converted from food production to growing crops for biofuels. Continuing as we are will mean more environmental degradation and further inequality between the Earth's haves and have-nots and leave us facing a world nobody would want to inhabit. John, strong words. Is this actually a veiled attempt to promote GM crops as the only way to feed the world? When you hear the word technology in relation to agriculture, it tends to mean GM crops. Um, This is not. This is the absolute opposite. This is arguing that GM crops is not the answer, and this is why it's so significant. This is 55 countries standing up and saying, no, Western industrial agriculture, as promoted by the World Bank and by the the FAO and others, has just not worked. And so we have to find a radically different way to do it. Britain hasn't signed it. America walked out. Uh, The GM companies are absolutely furious. This is a real line in the sand, especially for the poor countries. And the irony is that the, the IMF, the World Bank, all these bodies who sponsored this vast report, are the very ones which have introduced the liberalisation programme, which has led to the food crisis in the first place. Leah, you've said on the Guardian's climate change blog, you know, there's a danger that these reports can make us switch off to the issues. Do do you think this applies equally to climate change as to food shortages? You can obviously argue that they're all interlinked, but I think some of the climate change reports and comments that have come out recently are uh, slightly different to the, the food issue because the food issue is now and over the next kind of two, three, four, five years uh, sort of immediate issues. Whereas some of the climate change sort of reports talking about 2050 and things, I'm not, I'm not arguing the, what the science is. I, I think we should obviously be publishing that. I just worry that sometimes when you just, if your messaging is all about the doom and gloom, it's a bit like going into battle and your general saying, we're all going to die instead of saying, pumping everyone up and saying, we all need to sort of come together and unite and try and work out solutions. I'd love to hear a lot more about solutions as opposed to this kind of relentless drip drip, drip of this, bad this, news. This report does seem to offer some solutions. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's really arguing that, that invest in the poor, don't invest in the rich, mm. don't invest in Western technology and hope that that's going to work out for poor countries. They're saying, no, invest in the poor. They know perfectly well how to increase production. They know how to, uh, to sort out their own food crisis security. It's a very, very optimistic. I mean, a, a lot of the NGOs are absolutely over the moon. They're saying this is the best thing which has come out of the, out of the world system, the best report, the most optimistic in many, many years. Japan's Arctic methane hydrate haul raises environment fears. The Times. Japan doesn't get very good eco-press, mainly because of its whale hunting. Well, its green credentials are about to get even worse as it plans to unleash huge quantities of greenhouse gases that are locked under the sea. 
Japan imports almost all of its oil, gas and coal. But gas-rich ice called methane hydrate from the seabeds around the country's coast could give it energy independence. The Japanese may also license the technology to mine methane ice to China and South Korea. Environmentalists are horrified by the idea of releasing trillions of cubic metres of methane into the atmosphere, and they warn it could wreck marine ecosystems. John, this sounds pretty bad news. Well, don't go too far too fast, I'd say, because this is a technology which isn't actually there yet. There's got to be a big debate about it. It's all going to fit into the lots of other things. It reminds me very much of what's going on in Siberia, where the tundra is supposedly melting or is about to melt, and vast amounts of methane could be released. It's slightly a scare story, I think, but on the other hand, it, it's complete nonsense if that's the plan they're doing. Dan, I mean, methane is far worse than carbon dioxide, as exactly. greenhouse gas. And so. Leo, it seems that for every good story we hear about renewable energy, There's always another one about new ways to extract fossil fuels or the discovery of a new dirty energy source. I think that's going to be inevitable, really. But you've got all this fight going on for seabed rights and under the North Pole, and that's worrying. And just the, the reality is, we want more and more energy. It doesn't seem that anyone's buying the line that we should actually reduce our mm-hmm. um, energy consumption. We just want to find greener, so-called ways of just ramping up our energy use. Sadly, it means we're going to start end up going down some of these awful alleyways. Yeah. I think, and that that does sound like a particularly yeah. bad one. Yeah. Fujitsu reveals wooden laptop at Milan show, smartplanet.com. Fed up with plastic or magnesium alloy laptops? How about a wooden one? That's what Fujitsu is showing at the Japanese Design 2008 Innovation Show, which runs from the 16th to 20th of April in Milan. The keyboard isn't wooden, but the system does apparently use environmentally friendly bio-based plastics. Leo, I hear it's pretty hard to find a green computer. Well, probably the greenest computer would just be to carry on using the one you've got at the moment. Because, I mean, mo- most people who use their computers use literally a tiny fraction of their capabilities. And I read this week in the, with the news that there's hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the web, Microsoft users, who don't want the operating system XP to be basically wound up and let go by Microsoft. Would this um, mean that you'd have to get rid of your computer would, and get a new it one? It means you wouldn't get any free support or anything. And they want, basically, obviously, everyone to upgrade to Vista, which has been their new operating system and largely panned by the critics and users and people are now screaming out users it seems like saying please just let us carry on using xp even though it's been on the market for six years this kind of relentless cycle where with mobile phones with home computers we upgrade about every 18 months and clearly that's just madness i mean all this kind of talk of bamboo computers or wooden computers <laughs> and stuff it'd be far better if we just wound our current computer run it into the ground really just use it as, as much as we can and can you recycle computers when you well you can obviously them? strip them all out but then you've got to beg the question of obviously they're being shipped off to some dark corner of china where you've probably got children kind of pulling the motherboard apart and all the sort of toxic things and And they, yes, they certainly can be recycled and arguably should be built with the ability to be recycled, I think is the key, which a lot of hopefully EU directive is putting pressure on, on the electrical industry to do that. There's a fantastic bunch called Computer Aid who actually take old computers from Britain or wherever and uh, refettle them and send them out to Africa and, and uh, doing an f- absolutely fantastic job. The problem is, as Leo says, it's the other end and they are literally being dumped on the streets in Lagos, Accra and uh, it's, it's a mountain problem. Hermann Scheer is the German MP who created the feed-in tariff law. This allows ordinary Germans to sell the extra energy their homes produce back to the national grid at inflated rates. This has made Germany a leader in the renewable energy industry. 
Shearer is coming to London to talk about how feed-in tariffs could work here. Kate Connolly, the Guardian's Germany correspondent, asked him how he persuaded the German government to go along with his ideas. The government was against because the government has its traditional links to the conventional power sector, the, the conventional energy companies, very close links, very close. Therefore, it was an initiative of some parliamentarians. And we elaborated the concept, we wrote the law, and then we um, campaigned for majority within different groups. And then we got it. <laughs> With the two elements of the law. First element, guaranteed access to the grid for each independent power supplier with renewables and a guaranteed payment because um, the two uh, elements to block this development was not giving by the power company, not giving access to the grid or to, uh, to pay so few money for that that an investment was not possible. The general target is to mobilize all renewable energy options. Where, where are you at now? What's it, the stage? We have already each year an additional growth of 1.5% compared to the total power demand. Between 2000 and 2008, we enlarged the contribution of renewables from 4% to 15 within eight years. It's not bad. Within eight years. Mm. And uh, we created by this way a new industry. Yeah. Of alone in the wind uh, wind power industry, there are 80,000 people. Employed, yeah. Employed, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, with an annual growth of 30%. In the photovoltaic industry, we have actually, I think, 40,000 people. Annual growth, again, uh, 30%. We have 20 times more installed wind power than UK. But UK has better wind conditions than we. Longer coastline, that means more space for good sites. Nevertheless, we have 20 times more. Our costs are lower. Our wind power costs are lower. Although we have worse wind conditions, they are lower. Because we have an industrial, we created an industrial dynamic. We created a lot of private interests to do that. And we created an industry behind that. UK has no industry. The Department of Trade and Industry, they say, it stifles competition. But you're saying that the case is so urgent that you need to not look at it in the conventional because sense. You I, need to create the and, competition. <coughs> and uh, not to forget, it is a double standard argument. Because not one, not one energy carrier was introduced at no time in no country without public support. Not one. Look to all the nuclear subsidies directly and indirectly. Look to all that. It is tremendous, up to now. Early beginning, they had uh, uh, tax subsidies. Uh, they looked to the research uh, and development budgets. You have 80%, in more than 80%, 90%, 70% for nuclear energy, up to now. That was Kate Connolly talking to Herman Scheer. I'm Alison Benjamin, still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly. Rajendra Pachari, head of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, on what developing countries must do to get a new deal to tackle global warming. Author Bill Bryson's love of the English countryside is celebrated in his best-selling books, such as Notes from a Small Island. And as president of the Campaign to Protect Rural England, he's trying to save our green and pleasant land from disappearing under rubbish. This week, he launched a campaign to stop fly tippers and litter bugs blighting Britain's streets. 
Hello, my name is Bill Bryson, and um, I'm here today in my capacity as president of the Campaign to Protect Rural England. And I wanted to talk to you about a brand new campaign that we've just launched called Stop the Drop, which is a big three-year national anti-litter and fly-tipping campaign with particular emphasis on rural littering. Litter, as you will know already, is a big problem all over the country, but litter that gets dropped in urban environments tends to get swept up. In the countryside, however, increasingly it is being left to accumulate, and we're trying to do something about that. I think lots and lots of people feel very, very strongly that Britain has a glorious, wonderful, lovely-to-behold countryside, and that it deserves not to be trashed, that it should be treated with respect and kept lovely. So that's the whole idea of the campaign. Everybody knows that it's against the law to drop litter, but what a lot of people don't realize is that it's also against the law to leave litter. Litter that's left to accumulate is actually breaking the law. So if your local authorities are not picking up litter from laybys and roadsides and other public areas, they're actually neglecting the law. Very often they will, they will try to give the impression that they're doing the best they can, but that they have very limited resources. Well, that's not actually an adequate answer. They have a legal statutory responsibility to pick up and keep picked up litter in all environments in which they're responsible for. And for them to say to you that they'd love to do a better job, but they just haven't quite got the funding for it, is a little bit like them saying, you know, we wish we could get rid of all this sewage. We'd really love to be able to put out all these fires, but we can only afford to do some of them. They're actually supposed to be getting rid of litter everywhere not just local authorities, but also, you know, supermarket chains and people who have properties and manage land in, in any capacity. Uh, Network Rail is another great culprit that we will be focusing on. And there's three things in particular we're, we're recommending people do. One is that they take action, that they just make themselves heard, that they lobby their local authorities and just complain and exchange ideas and just help to get this onto the national agenda. The second thing you can do, which is really very helpful, is just pick litter up. If you're out walking and you see a crisp packet, don't turn a blind eye to it. Just bend over and pick it up. If we all picked up a little bit of litter, it would make a huge appreciable difference. And the third thing is then to get involved formally in some way if you possibly can, perhaps taking part in or joining or even forming a litter group in your own area. But the thing to do in the first instance is go to the CPRE's website where there's lots of advice and guidance, the kinds of things you can do. It isn't necessary to join CPRE to take part in it. It's really just a place where people who are opposed to litter and want to do something about it can get together and share ideas and get advice on where they can go and learn how to complain more effectively and that sort of thing. So please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you and we're very grateful to you for listening to me today. That was Bill Bryson. And if you want to join his campaign, go to cpre.org.uk. John, Leo, are things really that bad? Do we really yeah, need to have a campaign like this? We do. It's, it's really, really serious. If you ask the public generally, what's the biggest environmental issue for them is usually things like dog poo and litter. And litter is just ignored as a problem. The, the, the NGOs don't want to look at it. Nobody wants to look at it. Now we've privatised most of the waste industry um, in Britain. The, the urban streets are not too bad, I have to say. Litter tends to get picked up within a few hours. But in the countryside, anywhere near a, a McDonald's or anywhere near a, a fast food outlet um, down the lanes, it's just mounting up. It's really, really serious. Leo, you're in the countryside now. Is it a problem there? Well, the place you really notice it is on beaches, on the sort of high tide mark. I mean, the kind of coastal litter, I suppose, which is kind of drifted probably from thousands of miles away, is really disheartening when you see that. John's right, you, you see 
burger wraps on the moors or, you know, down country lanes or stuck in hedgerows and things. It's interesting that their campaign to protect rural England is sort of doing this campaign because it kind of, to me, it harks back to when I was a kid and you had that kind of keep Britain tidy mm-hmm. um, campaign. Yes. It's not, there's nothing new in this. And yeah. as John says, it's like these sort of timeless issue. Litter has just probably been an issue for decades, probably even hundreds of years even. It's kind of got people's goat. It's amazing that we still culturally just, you know, have this attitude to just throw things to the ground, or some of us do at least. I'm sure you two never threw any litter away <laughs> in your life. I got almost beaten up a few weeks ago. I, I, I followed a car and this chap chucked out a Big Mac or some whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, so I flashed my eyes and hooted my horn and he stopped. And I thought I'd have a sensible conversation with him, but he was, shall we say, he was very much larger than I was. <laughs> but he got the point, he got the point. <laughs> so, I mean, is it the fact that councils aren't taking their responsibilities seriously? Do we need to be fining councils more, taking them to court? I mean, what, what's the answer? What's going on is you're getting volunteer litter groups setting up Cotswolds, North Wales, South West, all over. And it's really, especially retired people are going out there with their sacks. They're being given a, a stick by the council or whatever, and they're going around picking it up. And it's not the the solution, but it shows how how people are really concerned. I think the local authorities don't really care very much what goes on outside their uh, immediate purlieu. Now, does Hippo the Water Saver mean anything to you? If not, you're probably wasting a lot of water every time you flush your toilet. The average toilet uses nine litres per flush, and we flush on average six times a day. So if half the people in the UK used just one less litre of water to flush, we'd save some 54 tonnes of CO2 in just one day. So why not join the Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative and sign up to this week's pledge to install a water-saving device in your system? To pledge, go to guardian.co.uk slash treadlightly. Of course, the most eco-friendly option is to have a composting toilet. Leo, have you ever tried this? <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think if I've ever... I've, I've had some sort of dark memories of being at Glastonbury but, uh, <laughs> what, a few years ago, but I don't think they were composting leaves. I didn't actually try one. I have visited one in the sort of looser sense of the term, and I've inspected one, but I haven't actually... How should we delicately put this? <laughs> Use one. Um, but, you know, they are great in the right context, but obviously they're not um, a solution that's going to sort of sweep across the land and be installed in <laughs> every new home. We once ran a piece about composting toilets. Got more reaction from readers than almost anything else in the world. I've, 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 I've sat on... Um, um, I used to live up a, a Welsh hillside and we had a composting toilet and uh, the view was marvellous. <laughs> Rajendra Pachari heads the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The economist and environmental scientist collected the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the IPCC, which it won jointly with the American former Vice President Al Gore. Thousands of scientists from across the world contribute to the work of the panel, which analyses the state of climate science and issues reports that form the foundation of international action, like the Kyoto Protocol. Dr Pachari was in London recently and gave an exclusive interview to The Guardian. In a noisy hotel lobby, he warned that until rich countries take serious action to tackle global warming, the developing world will be unwilling to sign up to a new global climate change deal. Well, I'm very optimistic because uh, if you listen to all the leaders across the world, nobody disputes the science except for one person, that's uh, Vaclav uh, Havel. <laughs> he, he still remains a sceptic, but I think all the leadership across the world now realises the scientific reality of climate change and they all say that we have to take some action. 
course, they differ on what the nature and extent of that action should be. I would say even the declaration that came out of Bali was quite encouraging. I mean, some people expressed disappointment that we didn't agree to a 25 to 40 percent cut in 2020. I think it would be unrealistic to have expected that. But what's come out and the fact that uh, they've used the term deep cuts mm. and they've also referred to the IPCC assessment for stabilization of the concentration of these greenhouse gases is significant. But what about China? What about India? Are these countries really going to come aboard? Do you... I don't think they will in the first round. I think they'd like to see some level of ambition on the part of the developed countries before they make any voluntary commitments of their own. Have they made that very clear to you since Bali? Not really. I only sense that, and this is purely a personal opinion. But I'm also basing it on the statements that both countries have been making. And just looking at the politics of the situation, I doubt if any of the developing countries will make any commitments before they've seen the developed countries take a specific stand. So the ball is in the course of the developed countries. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at it, there's some reason for dismay over what's happened or what hasn't happened. Mm. We came up with the Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. It took five years to get the Kyoto Protocol. Another nine years or so to get ratification. Mm. This really doesn't give anybody the conviction that, you know, those that had agreed to take action as the first step are really serious about doing so. And in several developing countries, you get this feeling that, or in fact, people state it very clearly, that these guys are not going to do anything. They're going to shove the whole burden on our shoulders. That is the mood which is really... Yes, yes. And I think um, that's where it's necessary, I think, for the developed countries to establish a certain credibility. That's been the position for a number of years, hasn't it? There's been this balance between what the developed countries will do to entice the developing countries. And do you think then that the developed countries have dragged their feet and just not done enough to encourage the developing countries? I think that's entirely true. And you know the very fact that you had two countries in the developed world that didn't even ratify the Kyoto Protocol, of course Australia has come back now, has not really helped in bringing about a desire to do something concrete. If you look at even some of the European countries that had targets under the Kyoto Protocol, some of them are far from reaching those targets. Mm. So apparently there's been a lack of seriousness in implementing what people had agreed on. I think that has to be corrected. Can you see any developed country which is really, truly getting to grips with this? I think Germany is. I'm pretty impressed with what Germany's been able to do. Mm. And they've been able to do it with uh, some degree of determination and I would say they've also accepted a certain amount of pain in moving towards renewable energy, in moving towards more efficient Mm. use of energy. I think the Japanese have done it in the past for Mm. very different reasons. Mm. To some extent, I think Britain has done quite well. But do do you really think that countries like the US and Japan will agree something in Copenhagen and sign up to something if China and India are not signed up to it? Well, I'm afraid if they don't do it, then I, I think we won't have an agreement. In my view, they have to establish their credentials by taking the first step. And that's very much in keeping with all the commitments that have been made in the past, going back to the Framework Convention on Climate Change. What do you think we would need to see from the developed countries to entice the developing world in? I think what you really need is is a set of measures and actions. Firstly, we certainly need all the developed countries coming up with uh, commitments somewhat similar to the EU proposal of 2020. I think that would certainly help. Secondly, there has to be some financing provided for adaptation measures. 
and also to help developing countries wherever mitigation is possible. And finally, some tangible efforts to make technology transfer a reality. And I'm not saying that these technologies should be given free of cost, but if there could be some facilitation in terms of low interest financing. And when you talk to people in China and even in India, they'll say it costs an additional amount. Who's going to pay for it? Now, I'm not saying that that whole differential should be paid for by a particular country, but let's say if there was low interest financing of some of these measures, it would make it very attractive for developing countries to opt for those technologies. I think some innovative uh, measures of that kind would certainly help. So when people like Tony Blair talk about getting a global deal within two years, do you think that's unrealistic? No, I don't think that's unrealistic at all. My own perception, which may be unjustifiably optimistic, is that you'll probably see a snowballing of initiatives and actions in the next few months. I think Blair can certainly make a difference. If he can deliver the Americans to Pontius Pilate, then <laughs> it could help. So there's still time, then. the developed world can still take the action I think so. required to bring those countries in within the framework of getting it done by Copenhagen? I hope so, yeah. I see no reason why it can't be done. But we have one conference of the parties in between. And as I said, we have to make substantial progress in that. We have to ask you then the inevitable question, what is your own carbon footprint? Terrible. (laughs) But, you know, my my standard response is that as a Hindu, I'm supposed to believe in reincarnation. So I'll leave the atonement for my carbon footprint to the next few incarnations. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Pachari, thank you very much indeed. That was Rajendra Pachari talking to John Vidal and David Adam. John, were you surprised by what he had to say? Yes and no. I think he was um, privately rather depressed about the whole thing because he sees an enormous gap emerging between the rich and the poor. He was very, very optimistic about um, Blair running around the world trying to bring together the large emitters. He was a bit downbeat about getting an agreement in one go. He thought it might have to go to Copenhagen in 2009 and actually come back again. He was very, very clear that the rich have really got to start doing things and not just sign up to a few legally binding targets, is what, what Britain has done, but actually start giving the poor technology, money, real things. This is going to be the crux of the whole thing. It's going to absolutely um, dominate the debate over the next few years. Personally, I'm totally with the Chinese on this. I totally buy what you could argue is a moral argument that the developed nations should essentially go first and do the big push, the Mm. big heave, Mm. first of all, because we have a legacy of 100, 200 years of industrializing. And from my own point of view, we we quite clearly have to lead the way and essentially make that first step. Otherwise, we're going to have this sort of dance for years and years on an international stage where people are going to go, no, you go first, no, you go first, and we're never going to get anywhere. But I think we have to really sort of pull up our sleeves and take responsibility. Well, that's it for this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests, John Vidal and Leo Hickman, and to my producer, Ian Chambers. For all your daily green news, go to guardian.co.uk slash environment and join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.